A reading from the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle blow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. I'm just hearing it read uh, this morning. Uh, We are just so aware of uh, the beauty of the truth and the great privilege we have to read your word and to learn from you. Pray, Lord, you help me uh, as I teach this morning to honor um, your word and help each one of us through your spirit to receive and to grow in the knowledge of you. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So Brother Lawrence was a uh, Carmelite monk who uh, lived in a monastery in France um, in the mid-1600s. Um, his main jobs um, in the monastery, he actually wasn't um, ordained, he was a lay brother um, in this monastery, um, and he was, uh, worked in the kitchen, and then later in his life he made sandals. Um, he basically lived what probably most of us would say was a pretty unremarkable life, uh, a life where actually he just didn't even interact with that many people outside of the monastery. And yet, we still remember Brother Lawrence today. He is still well-known because after he died, some of the fellow monks um, in the monastery and others who interacted with him collected um, uh, writings from his letters, um, wrote down things he had shared in conversations, and put those together into a book that's known as Practicing the Presence of God, a book where um, people basically collected all the different things that Brother Lawrence had shared about his commitment to regularly practicing the presence of God and living in God's presence. And that book continues to have a huge impact today. Um, There's so many quotes I could read. Let me just read a few quotes from practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence says this. He says, lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. And they said this, the difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them through faith or unbelief that makes them seem so. We must be convinced that our father is full of love for us and he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Then one more quote, let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of joy and in times of distress. I specifically chose those last um, two uh, quotes because in those he speaks of the fact that he was committed to practicing the presence of God, knowing and celebrating the presence of God, both in times of great joy, but also in times of distress. And even though, again, he lived a rather sheltered life, we know that Brother Lawrence faced um, severe distress at times. He had um, significant um, health issues that he dealt with, and yet the testimony of those who served alongside him was that he was a person of joy and peace. And so the question comes up, okay, it's good, right? We can say, that sounds good. Let's practice the presence of God. And yet if in practicing the presence of God, we still know distress, we still know difficulties, If knowing God's presence actually doesn't protect us, um, doesn't prevent us from experiencing difficulties in this life and pain in this life, really what difference does it make? We say, okay, great, God's with us, but if I still suffer, does that make any difference? And I want to suggest actually that in our Romans reading today, where we've been in the book of Romans, we have a a large section from the end of um, Romans 7, the beginning of Romans 8, that we see the huge difference in knowing the presence of God makes to us. 
and experiencing God's presence with us, and in particular, the empowering and saving presence of the Holy Spirit. That that basically makes all the difference, is what I believe Paul is communicating um, in this passage. So in this passage, actually, he mentions three different laws, right? So we have different laws that he's speaking about, and I want to consider these three different laws and consider how these laws affect us. And again, how we see in this uh, a call to live in the empowering presence of Christ, right? That comes through his spirit, through the work of the spirit. All right, so first he speaks of the law of God, right? Um, God's law, right? um, The Old Testament law, we could say the Mosaic law, God's ways, right? Which is, I just uh, prayed, our kids are actually learning the Ten Commandments um, downstairs uh, right now. That's part of their um, summer um, celebration. Now, Paul, as he speaks here, he's speaking autobiographically, right? He's telling some of his own story, but we can read this and see that he's doing it in a way that he's um, speaking of himself representationally, right? He's speaking of his own experience, but clearly he's saying, what I experience, many experience. I'm sharing my experience because I know probably um, you'll resonate with it. I certainly um, resonate uh, with it when I read it. And so we can read this again as Paul's sort of autobiography, right? It is telling of what he's experienced. But we can also say, what do I see in this, right? How have I experienced this? And again, because it's Paul, Paul is Jewish. He grew up Jewish. He's a, a, a Pharisee or was a Pharisee, right? Has now come to faith in Christ, right? We understand that when he's talking about the law, he's speaking about the Old Testament law, the law that is given that we um, read, right? In the book of Exodus and we read throughout um, the scriptures. But we can also apply it again as we um, consider that Paul's speaking representationally here. He's speaking in many ways of the experience of all humans. We can apply this to more broadly just that sense of right and wrong that people carry with them. Right, there is God's law right, that some have ex- you know, explicitly received and learned, but then there's a deep sense of God's law. He actually, Paul speaks about that at the beginning of Romans, that sense of right and wrong, that sense of the way we should live. There's a comedian um, I heard, this was years ago, and he was talking about he travels a lot, he was saying, and he's often able to, to fly first class because of the amount of traveling um, he does, and he was talking about how often he'll be sitting on a plane in the first class seat, and he'll see people coming on, and he'll see a soldier coming on to the, um, the plane, right? Some sort of active military person, you know, wearing their uniform. And he says, as, as the soldier walks by me, I'll imagine standing up, right, to him or her and saying, wait here, you take my seat, and I'll go and sit in your seat. Sit in first class. Thank you for serving our country. And then he said, just thinking about that makes me feel so good that I don't actually do it. He said, I've never done it before. <laughs> but man, I feel so good about myself just imagining doing that. Right? Now, it's funny. I'm glad you're laughing. I thought it was funny. Right? But I think there's truth in that. I think we, we think it's funny because we know that feeling of, man, I know what I want to do. I know actually the type of person I want to be. I can imagine it, and it actually makes me feel good to be that type of person. And yet the reality is I often don't meet that criteria. Again, I think Christians, non-Christians, right, folks with no interest in faith and those very interested in all sorts of faith, we all kind of carry this sense, right, in general. There's a standard I would love to meet. There's a way I would love to live. And as Paul speaking about his relationship with the law, again, I think many can resonate with this and say, yes, I can understand. Because what is he saying? He is saying the law is good. And that's really important to be clear on because that's kind of confusing in the book of Romans because he talks a lot about the law. And sometimes we may say the way he's talking about the law actually seems like he's saying it's not good, that there are problems with it. Well, we can see in this passage, first and foremost, he is saying the law is good, right? Verse 16, 
Now, if I do not do what I want, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second, I agree with the law that it is good. He's saying, actually, I experience, actually, in my, you know, inner being, he talks about his inner being, that I want to follow the law. I see its goodness. I see it is the way of life, as God told his people, right? That it is the way of freedom. That's a way of being aligned with him and who he is, right? And so he celebrates its good. Um, Verse um, 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's like right out of the Psalms, right? You can tell, again, you know, Paul, I'm sure, has memorized many, many of the Psalms, right? And we read that in the the Psalms, this delight in God's law. It is good, right? I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, he says. So we can say very clearly, right, he's celebrating the goodness of the law. He sees the goodness of it. And yet right alongside that, there's the acknowledgement that there's ways in which the law lacks power. Now, again, I want to be clear, there are ways in which, because again, if the law is sharing with us, is showing us God's very heart, is showing us the standards that God is saying, this is what it looks like to live in line with my character, there's power in that. And so we should be really clear, the law is powerful. It speaks the truth to us. It reveals to us the character of God. But there's also a way in which Paul is honestly sharing with us, there's a lack of power. Because I hear it, I learn it, I want to do it, and yet I, lo- I don't have the ability, right? He says that specifically, I don't have the ability to follow that law. And so even though I, I want to do it, right, and actually that desire to do it, the fact that he continues to engage in that battle, even though he faces the resistance, actually speaks to the goodness of the law, right? I keep wanting to do it. Even when I find I'm not following it, I keep wanting to, and I actually hate the ways that I'm not following it. And yet, again, there's a level in which the law doesn't help me. It tells me how I should live, but it doesn't help me to live that way. And so there's a lack of power there. And so we have, again, the law of God, right, which is good, but lacks some power, lacks against the help that he needs. And then we have him speaking of the law of sin. And again, he uses that very term, right? He talks about sin as being like a type of law. I spoke about this a few weeks ago, but we see it once again here, that sin, when we read about sin in the scriptures, right, what does that word sin mean? It's a, you know, word that's used a lot, but we can get a little confused what it means, right? On one level, we can understand it as, you know, things we do wrong as individuals, right? Our sin, our, you know, acting against God's ways, right? But we also see sin as a power. So when he talks about the law of sin, I believe he's speaking to, again, both our individual sins, But even more broadly, there is a power that is at work, right? And this power comes against following God's law. And the law of sin actually dwells in us. He says that three different times he speaks about the law dwelling um, in us, right? Two different times he speaks of the law as evil. All right, there's a law of sin, I should be clear. There's a law of sin as evil. Verse 23, he talks about being made captive to the law of sin, right? So it's, it's imprisoning. It limits freedom. And so we have, again, these various images of um, not only the evil, the damage that the law of sin does, but just how powerful it is. So we have these two laws, right? I, I have the law I want to obey. God's good law that I see is good, that I experience in my inner self is good. And I have the reality of sin and dwelling sin working against that. Again, if we think of that airplane example, it's like, why not stand up and give up your seat, right? If it feels so good to imagine that, why wouldn't you do it? 
I'm sure as we think about it, we can think of all sorts of reasons. Well, I, I paid for a first-class seat, right? I mean, why would I give that up, right? Selfishness comes against, again, the beauty of sacrifice, the reality of I'd be missing out on something. I'd be sitting, right, in a, a seat that's, you know, less than what I paid for. I'd be giving something up. And as well, like, do I know for sure that that, you know, soldier would respond in the way that I would hope them respond, right? Would they, you know, glorify me in the way I want to be glorified? Right? As we start to think about, you know, the implications of actually living selflessly, as we start to try to do it, again, we run into our own selfishness. We run into our own desire for glory. We run into the fact that, you know, the sacrifice that's often called upon us to live in the way God calls us to live is not really what we want to do. So we experience, again, the power of sin, the indwelling presence. It's, it's upsetting, actually. Isn't it to read him repeating over and over again, the power of sin dwells in me. And yet we can resonate with this, right? We can say, yes, I can see what he means. A couple things here. One is the use of the word flesh. That's obviously an important word um, that Paul's using there. He uses it a lot in his writings. And it's important to point out that primarily when Paul speaks about the flesh, that's a way of speaking about our sinful natures. So he speaks about our flesh. He's saying that's sort of the part of me that's inclined to sin. That's where I see sort of indwelling power of sin at work within me. And that's important to clarify because if we read flesh just as body, right, as just sort of physical matter, my flesh, then we may get the impression that Paul is actually saying the body is bad, right? You can feel that a little bit, especially right in that final, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So maybe he's saying, right, you know, the body always wants to do bad, the body's bad, but the, the mind is good, right? And that's not Christianity, right? We don't say that, right? We say the body is good. Matter of fact, Paul in um, Romans 12 says, offer your bodies to the Lord, right? As a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to him. Right? Paul calls us, the Lord calls us through Paul to glorify God with our bodies. So he's speaking about the flesh. He's not saying the body is bad, but here he is acknowledging, right, that our sinful natures affect what we do with our bodies. It affects our follow through. It's actually very similar to what Jesus said to the disciples, right, on the night before he died, when he said to them, right, the spirit is willing, speaking of their inner beings, right, he wasn't speaking of the Holy Spirit at that moment, but your spirit, right, your inner beings are willing but your flesh is weak, the follow-through, the acting this out, right, in your body. And of course, we know at times our mind is affected by sin. I mean, he's, Paul's speaking mind here, I believe, in the sense of inner being, of that deep desire within us, but our minds can be affected by sin as well. And so that's, again, as we see flesh, and as we see that in the next section in chapter 8, it's important to note that speaking of our sinful natures, right, of this sinful part of us, and not specifically our bodies, although it affects our bodies. But a second thing to note about as we consider these two laws is a big question that comes up in this section of Scripture in, in Romans 7 is, is Paul speaking about the experience of a non-Christian? Is this experience of someone who has not yet come to know the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, right, new life in Christ? Or is this actually the experience of a disciple? Is he actually giving a picture of this is a life where we experience the power of sin um, uh, at work with our desire to be righteous and our desire to follow God? And actually, if you want to read about it, there's a long history, right? I read about this week of, you know, different debates around this, right? Is Paul giving a, a picture of a Christian struggling with sin or a non-Christian who does not yet know the grace of God? Now, let me just say where I believe, I believe this is ultimately a picture of a non-Christian. This is a picture of life without grace, without knowing the grace of God. But I think there's a lot of reasons why we would read this and say, oh, this is a picture of a life of a Christian, 
partly, right, hugely, right, because we experience this as Christians, right, to a certain level. And so we can read this, and there's, I'm guessing, I'm not alone in this, we can resonate with this, and we can say, yes, I see myself in this. And if you're like me, perhaps even you read this and you kind of think like, man, I hope Paul's talking a little bit about what it means to be a Christian because I experience this as a Christian at times and I feel ashamed that I experience this. And so it's comforting to me to have this picture, right, given of like, okay, this can be the life of a disciple at times. And again, there's reason a lot of, you know, Bible scholars and theologians over time have suggested that's what this is a picture of. Now, again, before I talk about why I don't believe that's a picture of, let's just be clear. The scriptures do teach us that to be in Christ and to know the Lord doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin, right? All you have to do is read Paul's letters, and you know that's true, right? If you read 1 Corinthians, right, the book of 1 Corinthians, one of my favorite books of all of scripture, begins, and he speaks to the, the Corinthian church, and he calls them those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying, you know the Lord. You know the sanctifying power of Christ in your lives, right? In your church. And then for the rest of the book, he berates them for all the ways that they're sinning, right? He basically gives them this long list of, here's what you're doing wrong. He gives it to them because he loves them and he wants to call them to, new li- or to live out the new life they've received, right? But clearly we see you can be a Christian and struggle with sin. But again, I believe this actually is a picture of life apart from grace, right? <laughs> apart from the new life in Christ. Why? Well, one thing, again, it speaks of um, being captive by sin. It talks about my members, like I'm a prisoner to sin. And yet in the chapter uh, right before this, so in the section actually after uh, Joel preached on the beginning of Romans 6 and the later in Romans 6, it says this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And then just a few verses later, he says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, right? So it'd be contradictory if he said, you're no longer a slave to sin, and then to paint this picture of someone who's a slave to sin. And so again, yes, sin does have power, but actually the picture of a disciple is not one who's enslaved and captive to sin. But the other thing, and I think this is perhaps even more striking, is when you read this section of Romans um, 7, the end of the seventh chapter of Romans, Paul's so alone in this, isn't he? As he's experiencing, as he's talking about his experiences, he's talking about this battle, we see someone who's in isolation. It's actually really unlike Paul to speak of himself very much like it's all about me. It's about me, right? I I want to do this, but I can't do this. I want to do this, right? It's this wrestling with himself, right? It's a picture of a person really isolated, And so, right, I mean, he feels this isolation, this sense of like, I'm struggling, right? And he calls out, right? Or he imagines himself calling out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But from what we've read so far in the book of Romans, is there any question that Paul thinks that, you know, Christians need to ask that question, right? Is that a question you would say a disciple of Jesus should ask the question, who will save me from this body of death? Right? No, he's made it clear again and again and again. We know, right, to be a follower of Jesus is to know, I know the one who will save me from the, this body of death. Matter of fact, I know that I can't save myself. I know that I need someone else and that there is someone who can save me. And so we have, again, in this picture, a picture of how sin isolates us, how sin basically tells us you're alone. But the message of the gospel is you are not alone right? God is present with you, right? When you were dead in your sins, God intervened and came and saved you. When you couldn't save yourself, right? Which none of us can, 
He saved you. So much again of Romans again and again is God has done this. God has done this. God has done this. And here is a picture of someone who's, what do I do? Right? Who's going to help me? And again, the answer in the gospel is we have help. And so, yes, we can see in this, right, the, the you know, um, wrestling that we often do. But again, the answer is you don't have to wrestle like this. You aren't alone. You're not isolated. As I think again of that isolating power of sin, a couple of weeks ago I talked about um, Christ as the new Adam, right? And so we remembered, right, the Adam and Eve getting him to temptation. And one of the biggest heartbreaks, right, when we read the story of Adam and Eve giving him the temptation is, why did they call out for God? Like he was there, right? I mean, he would, he would have come immediately if they had just said, God, the serpent's saying these weird things and we're confused and he's saying things about you that don't seem to be true, but we're starting to believe them. Help us. Right? That's the life of a disciple, right? In our VBS, right? The, the theme in our VBS a couple of weeks ago was battle and about battle, right? That's a, a reality of the Christian life, right? We're called to put on the armor of God. But again, there's armor that we can put on. We can stand firm in faith. And so we have this picture, again, of isolation where we're sort of torn between two laws, the law that we want to do and the law that ends up having more power over us. But there is then a third law. And isn't it interesting that he talks about life in the spirit using the term law. He's wanting to make clear, like, you're not under the old law in the sense that, you know, you just have to try as hard as you can to obey it. You're not under the law of sin. You're under the law of the spirit of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he's saying, this is the reality that you have in Christ. There is no condemnation for you. And we can read condemnation, we can, you know, separ- you know put in for that, you know, substitute separation. And that's what it means, right? To be condemned, right? Especially, you know, by the Lord is to be separated from him. And so if we read that as separation, then we can say, of course, right, there's no condemnation, there's no separation if we are in Christ Jesus. To know Jesus, to have put our faith in him, to have received life from him, is to be in him, is to be unified with him, is to know his presence, no matter what, no matter what we face, he is present with us, his saving presence, his empowering presence. Again, that's such a powerful verse, right? But it's, again, it's just the obvious truth. You're in Christ. How can you be condemned if you're in Christ, if you are in your Savior? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. And notice then the Trinitarian, right, um, uh, uh, description we have here. For God, right, God the Father has done what the law weakened by the flesh cannot do by sending his own Son. God the Father sends God the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. There's no condemnation for us because Christ condemned sin in the flesh through his death and his resurrection on our behalf in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so we've received righteousness because of what God has done for us, right? The Father sent the Son. The Son died and lives for us. And we have received that work of the Son through the Spirit. And so when we think about the law of the Spirit, again, I think he's using law there to say, this is the reality, this is the dynamic you're called to live in, but don't miss out on the personal aspect of the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. This is not just a force, right? The Spirit is not just some force, some principle that's a work in our lives. The Spirit is a person who brings us, again, the very presence of Christ, who empowers us and fills us with the presence of Jesus. So we can say we are in Jesus because we are Spirit-filled people. To know Jesus is to know the Spirit and experience the Spirit's work. And so there's a strong emphasis on, again, this is what God has done. This is God's work. First and foremost, that's where we start. But 
We should also know, then he says, but who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there's a calling for us here. This is what the Spirit has done. We have received new life, right? We have been saved. We are empowered by the Spirit. Now walk in it. And so there is, again, a um, calling upon us to engage our will, to engage our bodies, to walk in the reality, right? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is what you're called to do, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you are here last week, Joel talked about consider, right? The importance of the word consider. Sometimes it's um, translated reckon, right? Consider, set your minds on, live in this reality. And again, it's a reality. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, this can sound a little bit like, okay, you know, you used to think about the law and how, you know, how you failed. Don't think about that. You can try to think about sin and how it dwells. You don't think about that. Think about the spirit. And we may hear in that like, oh, well, that just sounds like positive thinking, right? Just be positive and think about the good things and not the bad things, right? But, but to be clear, this is reality. So it's not like, you know, a runner before a race saying, I'm the fastest runner, I'm the fastest runner. You know, I'm the fastest runner, I'm going to convince myself that this is true so that I run faster, right? I mean, that may be effective, you know, maybe it works, right? But that's, again, like convincing yourself of something that you want to be true. This is living in what is true. As I was thinking about that, again, I'll, I'll steal from Joel. Um, again, uh, I was thinking about marriage, right? Joel um, gave the example marriage um, last week and about touching his, his uh, wedding ring and remembering that truth, right? Well, that's a truth for those who are married. We can say this is objectively true that I'm married. This is part of my identity, right? I'm married. I'm to Molly. That's who I am. It's part of my identity. That's not just a legal identity, although it is, right? I mean, there's a marriage license um, uh, that's, you know, signed that acknowledges we are married, but that's a spiritual identity, Right, the Lord said, right, the two shall become one flesh. Right? There's a, a spiritual reality. And so that's part of my identity. That's real. I don't have to convince myself that it's true. It is true. But the fact of the matter is, sadly, I don't always live in that reality, right? Because to be a husband, right, according to the scriptures, is to love my wife as Christ loved the church and to lay down my life for her. And I don't always do that, right? I don't always live in that sacrificial calling that I'm called to as a husband. And when I don't, though, I'm not living in reality, right? I'm not living true to who I am, right? And when I turn and say, Lord, help me, and when I actually seek out Molly, help me, right? And live into that relationship, right? It's good for her. It's good for me, right? It's good for our marriage. But again, that's because there's a reality. There's a spiritual component there. And so when we hear, live according to the Spirit, right? Set your mind on the Spirit. That's not try as hard as you can, right, to be good. That's live in this reality. And a matter of fact, as you turn to the Spirit, you're turning to a person who's empowering you and helping you. So often we turn to those past masters, right? When we think of sin, right, temptation, right, death, those are masters whose power has been removed. Yes, we still experience, right, resistance. But again, they're, they're failed masters. They're defeated masters. And we can submit ourselves to our true master, right, our king, our Lord, right, through the life of the Spirit. So let's uh, pray for that. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to end by reading our, our collect um, uh, this morning, that prayer of the bottom of page five, which speaks so powerfully uh, to this of reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are not alone. Uh, I just pray for each person here right now that in ways in which the, the power of sin may want to tell them that they are isolated, that they are alone, that they are without help, 
We just thank you, Spirit of God, that you speak against that lie. We pray, Lord, that you would open each one of our hearts to receive that. Lord, we ask for your help to live in your presence. And we thank you, Lord, that when we live in your presence, we are living in reality. We are living in what is true. Instill that in us, Lord. Strengthen our wills to continue to turn to you. And Lord, I pray you would help us as a community to encourage one another, to um, uh, uh, fan into flame the Spirit of God who's at work in our midst. Oh Lord, we pray the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who can do no good thing apart from you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.